So many of you know that uh, Andy and I traveled to Turkey last December, and one of the things that I love about these uh, trips is that the Lord surprises you with many unique encounters. We were sitting in the Istanbul airport one evening, and we met this one fella, an English-speaking Iraqi, who was attending a university in Arizona, but flying home to visit his family for a few weeks. And he learned that we were Christians. We asked him if he'd heard about Jesus, and he said yes. He had some church friends in Arizona who'd been telling him about Jesus, and he went on for a bit with the stories of Jesus healing and and Jesus loving neighbors and his teaching and even dying on the cross. He thought Jesus was a very special person. But at some point, as we're all expressing agreement with the good things he observed about Jesus, we say something like, and Jesus rose from the dead. And you can see the expression on this guy's face change from a more surface level sharing of common interest to something that really mattered. He said, wait, Jesus rose from the dead? And we're all going, yeah, I mean, that's the rest of the story. Your church friends told you that, right? He says, no, I hadn't heard that part of the story. But that would change everything. I would think, he says, that the disciples found that to be really important. It's like, uh, yeah, like really, really, really important. Makes all the difference in the world. And that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at why the resurrection of Jesus is such a big deal. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean? And I want to give you seven answers to that question But before I need to do, I need to make a couple of clarifications. First of all, these seven answers assume that many folks know what the resurrection of Jesus is. If you don't, here it is very briefly. When the Bible speaks of the resurrection of Jesus, it's not talking about a state that he entered immediately following death. It means new bodily life after a period of being dead. In Jesus' case, he rose to new bodily life on the third day being dead. But we must also note that Jesus' resurrection is more than mere resuscitation. Jesus rose from the dead with a transformed physical body. It was still his own physical body. We know that from places like Luke 24. Jesus says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Which makes his resurrection much different from ideas like reincarnation in other religions. It's his own physical body. But it's also a transformed body. As 1 Corinthians 15 describes it, it's a spiritual body, a glorified body, a heavenly body, no longer subject to death and decay and corruptibility. It has, in fact, put on immortality. And it's in this way that Jesus' resurrection is unique. You know, others came to life from the dead as well in the scriptures. Others like Lazarus, They rose to life, but only to die again. Not with Jesus. He rose never to die again. And nowhere in history has any person entered death and then taken up their life bodily, never to die again. Rather, again and again and again, the grave proves its power over us. We cannot escape death on our own. Death holds people in the grave because people have this massive problem called sin. You see, death entered the world because of sin. Death isn't just the natural end to life among some fixed chain of events like our evolutionist neighbors might suggest. Death is God's judgment against sin. Death is in our bones because we rebel against God. Isaiah calls death the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. The entire created order, Paul says, groans to be released from its corruption and death. 
Death is a curse that rests on humanity and nobody can escape it. Nobody can beat it. But there was one man who did. One man entered death and rose again to life bodily, never to die again. Jesus rose to life bodily, leaving death behind altogether. In a nutshell, that is what the resurrection of Jesus is. A second clarification is this. The seven answers we're about to look at also embrace the truthfulness of the Bible's claims. Our access to the resurrection of Jesus is really no different than uh, the access we have to nearly all historical events. We access historical events through the witnesses that were present and the testimony or records they left behind for us to read. In the case of Jesus' resurrection, we have the records of multiple eyewitnesses to the empty tomb in which Jesus' body was laid, including several women and Peter and John, and ironically, even the soldiers who were guarding it. We also have the records of eyewitnesses to whom the resurrected Jesus appeared for 40 days until he ascended into heaven. Paul lists people off like Peter, James, the Twelve, and 500 other brothers who were still alive at the time that he was writing. And the idea is is something like this. Hey, if you don't believe what I'm saying, go ask so-and-so. I mean, he saw it too. He saw the same thing I did at the same time that I did. So we're not left with just the potentially open-ended testimony that the tomb was empty. We also have the complementary testimony that these hundreds of witnesses saw the resurrected Jesus and heard him and touched with him and ate with him on the beach for 40 days, in some cases. Not that they ate on the beach for 40 days, that they saw him over a period of 40 days. So that means the resurrection of Jesus isn't just a religious idea. Jesus didn't just rise in our hearts. He didn't just rise in the disciples' minds. His resurrection isn't just a mythological story from which we glean timeless truths to live by. It's saying that God Almighty entered history in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus died for our sins and then He really walked out of the grave alive never to die again. This makes Christianity vastly different from the majority of other religions. All that matters to most religions is whether the experience holds true regardless of historical verification. Christianity is dependent on its historical claims. The resurrection of Jesus is a historical claim that everyone must face to their own salvation or everlasting condemnation. It's not something you can ignore. That will become all the more clear as we walk now through our seven answers to this question. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean? Number one, Jesus' resurrection means that God is faithful to his word. In Acts 13, 32, that's our first text. Paul says, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So God promised something in the Old Testament to the fathers. He has fulfilled it by raising Jesus. Then 1 Corinthians 15, 4, Paul Paul says that Christ was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So God spoke of Jesus' resurrection in the Old Testament. He did so by direct prophecy. Isaiah 53, for example, speaks of God's servant suffering and then dying in the place of sinners, but not staying dead. By the end of Isaiah 53, the servant is receiving the spoils of his victory and claiming his offspring for himself. 
The Old Testament also speaks of Jesus' resurrection using uh, various types and, and foreshadows. Psalm 16.10, David, uh, King David says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And this was a, a pointer to the true Davidic king who would overcome victoriously death altogether. We can also think of the story of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so, the, so must the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Or some of you looked at Hosea 6, 2 and Hosea 13 this morning in Sunday school. The point is that over and over God promised to raise up His King, raise up His Messiah, raise up His Servant, Raise up his true Israel. And now in the resurrection of Jesus, he proves his faithfulness to his word. What kinds of words has God spoken to you as you thumb through the pages of Scripture? Words like this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Words like this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. These are God's promises to you as you read the Bible. But not a single word would mean anything if Jesus' bones were still in Jerusalem. But with the resurrection of Jesus, we see God's faithfulness to His Word. We have a concrete hope that God will fulfill His promises to us as well because they're bound to a person who can never die. As long as Jesus' body lives, which is forever God's promises toward you are sealed and they are certain. Your faith is not blind. It is linked to an object, to a person who is risen as a seal to God's faithfulness to his word. Number two. Jesus' resurrection means that Jesus himself is righteous. Jesus himself is righteous. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul is reminding the church of the gospel, the mystery of godliness, he calls it. But focus on the first two lines of this confession. It says, Christ was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit. This vindication by the Spirit isn't just a reference to Christ being anointed by the Spirit in His earthly ministry. It's a reference to Jesus' resurrection. We have this theme of humiliation and exaltation. When God the Father raised Jesus from the dead by the Spirit, He vindicated Jesus. That means He showed the world that Jesus was the righteous one after all. You see, as long as Jesus stayed dead, His righteousness was in question. Remember, death is God's judicial response to sin. The reason death holds people in the grave is that people are sinners. And that has been true since Adam. As long as Jesus remained dead, his faithfulness to God, his, his righteous character, the words he spoke, it was all in question. Can you really be the light of the world when darkness has snuffed you out? When his lifeless and limp body was laid in the tomb, the question was this, did the world that crucify him, that crucified him, did they pronounce the right verdict? Criminal. Blasphemer. 
And the resurrection shouts, no. The world's verdict was wrong. The resurrection is an event in which God vindicated his son from the wrong verdict pronounced by the world. And more than that, it was God's way of saying that his son was in fact righteous in all that he did as a man. Jesus, the, the resurrection proves Jesus' righteousness. What does that mean for you? For me? Well, let's go to our next answer and find out. Number three, Jesus' resurrection means that his people are forgiven and declared righteous when they believe. His people are forgiven and declared righteous when they believe. If Jesus' resurrection proves his own innocence, if it vindicates him as the only righteous one, the question becomes this, then why did he die? The Bible's answer is that he died for sins that were not his own. The world's verdict against Jesus was wrong. God's verdict against our sin was right. It deserved death. It deserved penalty. And Jesus willingly took that death upon himself in our place. Romans 4.25 brings this out in relation to Jesus' resurrection. Romans 4.25, you want to go there. It says this, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's take each side of that verse. First side, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. So we see there that Jesus died for sins that we committed, our trespasses, not sins that he committed. He identified with us in the punishment that our sins deserved, namely death under the wrath of God. Now the second side, Jesus was also raised for our justification. In other words, our right standing with God, our justification, would not have occurred without Jesus being raised from the dead. The same idea is behind Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is a joke, basically, and you're still in your sins. An unraised Christ means an unjustified sinner. But if he has been raised then our sins are truly taken away. He died for them. God's seal of approval was over his death. And we have a righteousness with God's stamp of approval on it. By being raised from the dead, Jesus' vindication as righteous one becomes the justification for all who choose to identify with him. Meaning what God declares of Christ in his resurrection body, he is righteous. He also declares of you when you put your faith in him. No matter what you've done or where you've been or who you've slept with, faith in Christ means God declares you righteous with his son. The difference is that Jesus' righteousness is innate to himself. And our righteousness, when we're in Christ, is imputed to us from him. All our sin goes on his back. When he takes it to the grave, he rises. We get all his righteousness when we believe. We won't stand before God because of anything that we've done, but because of everything Christ is for us. That's good news. But it's only good news for those who believe in Him. If you're not in Christ today, if you're trusting yourself to make it, depending on your own good works to stand before God, maybe you even tried cleaning up your act a bit by coming to church today, 
then I would plead with you to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Come as you are to him. I promise he will not leave you the same. But come as you are. You need his righteousness if you're going to withstand the holy gaze of the almighty judge on the last day. Believe in him and all that he is as the righteous one will be yours. It will be credited to your account. And if you're already a Christian, my plea is the same for you. Never turn to trusting in anything, even as a Christian. Never turn to trusting in anything except Christ's righteousness to give you a right standing before God. Don't start believing that your justification depends on how well you perform every day. Or how together your marriage is. Or how studious you may be. Or how savvy you are at the office. Or how unwavering your church attendance is. Or how gifted you are with this or that. Or how much you don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. Your ground for justification before God is Christ and Christ alone. Nothing else. He is the righteous one we need. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will God accept. Number four, Jesus' resurrection means that his people are free to live for God. They are free to live for God. Jesus says in John 8 that apart from God's grace, we are enslaved by sin. And when you're enslaved to sin, you cannot please God, Romans 8 says. That's not the way the world thinks. You see, the world thinks that it is free. It can do whatever it wants, whenever they want. But the Bible says that's not freedom. That's actually bondage. True freedom is the freedom to do what we ought. Is the freedom to do what is right in God's eyes. The resurrection of Jesus makes this obedience to God possible. And I want you to see it from Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, where Paul goes on this lengthy discourse of our union with Christ and baptism. And, res- and, and, uh, and he says this. I'm just going to read verses 4 and 10. So verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death. In order that, and notice the connection here, in order that. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What is this newness of life? Well, he'll go on to tell you later on. In this, uh, uh, it, it has an ethical dimension and moral dimension in the way we treat other people, the way we relate to God, the way we relate to our neighbors in the, in the world This is this newness of life. So we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And then notice the connection again now to the believer. So you, believer, also must consider yourselves dead to sin... And alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is, alive to God in the risen Christ Jesus. In other words, there's an objective historical reality. It happened, Christ's death and his resurrection happened outside of us. It's unchangeable. It's back there. It's not, it's the same forever. It happened in history. But there's a mysterious union between Christ and his people, such that what happens to Christ in the past makes necessary what happens to his people as they're united to him by faith in their own lifetime. That's a long sentence. I'll say it again. There's a union that we share with Christ and such that what happens to Christ in the past, in his death and resurrection, makes necessary what happens to his people as they're united to him by faith in their own lifetime. 
This is why Paul can say you're not only count, you not only can consider yourself dead to sin. Why? Because you died when Christ died. But you're also alive to God. Why? Because Christ was risen from the dead and he lives to God, so do you live for God. Christ's historical resurrection trans- transforms our present experience when we believe in him. Because he still lives to God, his people can live to God. Some of us are only living according to half of that gospel. We know that Jesus died for our sins. We know that he offers forgiveness. But do we truly embrace the new life that is made possible through resurrection? In my experience as a pastor here, and in my own experience as an individual Christian, I mean, we, we sometimes live as if the latter half of this gospel message isn't true. Perhaps we fall into long periods of self-pity. I've been there. Thinking that our sin is just too great for grace to handle. Perhaps we think that the new life is just impossible to even try that we're just always going to be this way. But the good news of Jesus' resurrection is that if you're united to him, moral transformation occurs. His resurrection gives you the want to obey God, the compulsion to love what he loves. The resurrected Christ no longer allows sin to reign in your mortal body. No, he transforms the members of your body into instruments, weapons for righteousness. The resurrection says to every believer, you can overcome sin. You can overcome sinful anger. It doesn't define you anymore. It's not just who you are. You can say no to temptation. You don't have to give in to the allurements of this world. You don't have to take another drink or another puff. You can walk away from the love of money and from harsh attitudes with your wife and from the same-sex attractions and from talking behind your brother's back. You can, you can, you can. Why? Jesus is risen from the dead and he lives to God, so do you. His life is in you. Yes, you'll still be tempted. Yes, you will still struggle until he comes again. But sin no longer rules those who belong to Jesus. Because he is alive to God, you're alive to God. And that reality leads us straight into our next answer, number five. Jesus' resurrection means that our resurrection is already and not yet. Our resurrection is already... And not yet. If I said it was already and didn't qualify it with the not yet, I'd be a heretic. It is already and not yet. The Old Testament expected a final resurrection at the end of time. Daniel 12 speaks of this when God will raise the dead, some to a resurrection of judgment, others to a resurrection of of reward. Final resurrection at the end of time. But part of the uniqueness of Christ's resurrection is that it, it, occurs, it occurs before the end of time. Okay, in Jesus' case, the final resurrection actually gets pulled back into history. It breaks one end-time event into two episodes. Episode one, Jesus rises from the dead. Episode two, his people rise from the dead. This is what the Bible usually means when it says that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's not just talking about the state of death. It's true. Yes, he, rose from, he, raised, he rose from the state of death. But when the Bible says that he rose from the dead, it means from all the dead ones who will also be raised one day. It's saying he beat everybody else out of the grave. He is the beginning, Colossians 1.18 tells us. The firstborn from the dead ones. That in everything he might be preeminent. God wasn't going to raise anybody else before Jesus like this. His son deserves preeminence. Gives it to him. Or take uh, 1 Corinthians 15.20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits. What are the first fruits? 
The first fruits describes the part of the harvest that was brought to the temple and offered to the Lord. And what those first fruits represented, I mean, what those first fruits were is that they, they were a representation of the rest of the harvest. And it was a sign also that more was coming. So Jesus not only represents what each member of the coming harvest will look like in our new, transformed, resurrected bodies. He not only represents us that way, he's also our forerunner, our assurance, our guarantee that God will also raise us from the dead. And it's even stronger than that. Paul is saying that the resurrection harvest has already begun. It's not here in full. It won't be here full till we get our resurrection bodies with Jesus. But it has already begun. It has begun in Christ. And because of this two episodes thing going on in the scripture, Jesus' resurrection and ours at the end experientially between this time period, Jesus' resurrection and his second coming when we're raised from the dead, experientially this is what happens. Our resurrection is already and not yet. When we believe in Christ experientially in history before the end comes, Ephesians 2, 6 can say that we have been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. Already. Already. That's true. We're raised invisibly now with Christ when we believe. Our inner man, our soul has been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. But we still wait for our resurrection bodies that are coming at the end when Christ returns Again, so we're already raised and not yet raised. And this is why you see the New Testament doing two things for us simultaneously. On the one hand, it gives us many moral exhortations to believers again and again and again. Uh, The apostles do this because in terms of who we are in Christ, we're raised with him. We're already seated with him. We have the ability in Christ to live out the new moral order that he is establishing, that his future kingdom is bringing as it comes crashing into the present. And so that means love your brother. Show hospitality. Forgive each other. Do honest work with your own hands. Why? Because we're seated with Jesus. And we belong to his moral order, his kingdom that is coming to earth. We already belong to him. Now live it out. Be the visible manifestation of his kingdom on earth. Church. That's what a local church is. On the other hand, it's also why the New Testament keeps pointing us beyond to the age to come. When our own physical bodies will finally be raised to be like Jesus' glorious body. 1 Corinthians 15 Verses 51 to 53, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. As D.A. Carson puts it, The ultimate hope of the Christian is not simply to be with Christ in some immaterial existence, but to have resurrection bodies in a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. Our resurrection is already. The first fruits have come in. Our inner man is seated with Christ, but it is also not yet. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Which is connected to yet a sixth answer to our question. All of these are intertwined with one another. And I I'm barely scratching the surface of what the scriptures teach in terms of Jesus' resurrection. But here's another one. Jesus' resurrection also means that God's new creation is already and not yet. 
His new creation is already and not yet. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, picks up this theme in relation to Adam. Okay, if you know, Adam is a type of Christ who was to come. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. The world has suffered curse since Adam plunged humanity, the first Adam plunged humanity into sin. The ground has borne thorns and thistles. Families and relationships have been shot through with envy and hurt. Nations rage against one another with violence. Death is all around us. We cannot ignore it. But the Bible also promises a day of future glory, a day when the curse is lifted, a day when the thorns and thistles give way to a garden paradise that covers the earth, a day when weapons of war turn into farming implements. It's the anticipation of a new world order, a new creation where everything and everyone enjoys the rule of God in peace. Jesus' resurrection is the inauguration of that new creation. By rising from the dead, Jesus becomes the new and the final Adam who establishes a new humanity dominated by the Holy Spirit. You ever wonder, why is it that Jesus, he rises from the grave in John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 22, rises from the dead... He's there with his disciples. Why does he breathe on them? That's what it says, John 20, 22. He breathes on them. And says, receive the Holy Spirit. Why do something like that? Because John has the same theme running, running through his gospel. It's why Pilate said, behold the man. This man, not like that man, Adam, that sent us all plunged into sin. This man stood before us and was crucified and now God has raised him from the dead. And this man, this new Adam, is breathing on them. Why? He does it to make a statement. In the same way God breathed life into his first creation, which was now broken because of Adam's sin... Jesus, now risen from the dead, is breathing life into his new creation. The disciples were just the first to experience it. These 12, here they are, the new humanity. And this new creation, this, it has personal dimensions. This is why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation already. It ain't here yet in full, but you're already a new creation. And then it also has cosmic dimensions. Romans 8.21, the creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we've already entered the new creation as believers, and yet we're also waiting for the new creation fullness. But here's the deal. The key move, it's already been played to take all of history to that new creation. I was playing checkers with Luke last week, and he was creaming me at the beginning. I had like three checkers left. I didn't have any of his gone. But these three checkers made it to the other side became kings, and slowly I started working my way back, jumping one by one, till finally my kings had hid, my three kings had his two kings cornered. I had played a move in which he couldn't, he couldn't move anywhere else without being jumped. Even though his checkers were still on the board, my victory was sealed. That's what happened when God raised Jesus from the dead. We still see the remnants of this old order 
all around us. But the key move has been played. God raised Jesus from the dead, beginning his new creation order. This is why the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, uh, West preached on it in January. It says that at the present, you know, we, we don't see everything uh, in subjection to him. But we do see him. We do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. In other words, we don't see everything in subjection to humanity like it's supposed to be, like God created it to be. Ah, but we do see the new Adam. We see the last Adam now risen from the dead and crowned with glory and honor. Perhaps you look at the political situation we're in and become rather fretful of the kinds of people who could possibly serve as our next president. When you begin to face such fears and worry, turn off the phone, turn off the TV, and get on your face before God and remember Jesus risen from the dead to usher in the new creation. The next president of the United States doesn't determine your destiny, nor does it determine this world's destiny. Jesus Christ alone determines our destiny. And one day this world will give way fully to his new creation order of which you've already been made a part, if you're in Christ. And take hope in that. Or perhaps you don't pay much attention to politics. But the wrinkles still grow deeper as the time goes on. The muscles aren't as strong as they used to be. Right? Freshman prime, it's gone. I got pictures of my freshman prime. It's gone. It's just tank, it's tanking downhill. Ask Michael, I complain every week as we work out together. Sometimes you want laughter, but only sorrow seems to keep coming. You're still having to drive to the funerals of your family members and friends. Too many funerals, dear. That's what Rachel tells me on the way to another funeral this past Wednesday. And then to see the the 10-year-old son and four daughters talking bravely through tears about their mom inheriting glory. The pain is sometimes unbearable. You feel the effects of your cancer taking life. Death lays siege of our world. It comes knocking on our door. But we do see him. We do see him, don't we? Crowned with glory and honor. We do see Jesus risen from the dead to bring us a new world we do see that God has played the final move. And He alone is our hope. He is the resurrection and the life. John 11 says, Whoever believes in Him, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Him shall never die. See, what we talked about a minute ago helps us understand Jesus' words. Whoever lives and believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live, meaning at the resurrection of our bodies. But he also says this, everyone who lives now and believes in him now shall never die. How can we never die if our bodies will one day lay in the grave? How, how can we never die? We can never die because our souls, our inner man, have already been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. They can never take Christ away from us. Death can never take Christ away from us. It's what he's talking about. And Christ is the resurrection and the life. So whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. And finally, number seven. Jesus' resurrection means that he will come again to judge the world. Jesus' resurrection means that he will come again to judge the world. This is from Acts chapter 17. 
Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. It says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. A man is going to judge the world. One man, Jesus Christ. And God has given us assurance of this by raising him from the dead. The immorality and wickedness of this world sometimes seems unbearable. With the saints of old, we cry out, Why, O Lord, do the nations rage? Why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That is our cry. God's answer to us is Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection shows that we do live in a world in which righteousness will finally prevail, in which good will ultimately win, in which life will swallow up death. For three days, it seemed like that wouldn't be the case. But Jesus' resurrection says, not so fast, grave. Death claimed him for our sins, but death had no right to keep Jesus himself in the grave. His resurrection means that righteousness really did triumph. And that means the whole world is accountable to Jesus Christ. He cannot be ignored if he is truly risen. If the historical claim is true that Jesus is risen from the dead, he cannot be ignored. He is judge of the universe. He will sit on his great white throne. From his presence, earth and sky will flee away. The dead, great and small, will stand before his throne. And the books will be opened. Jesus will get the final word. Are you right with him? His resurrection does not allow us to approach him neutrally. It's not something that we Christians commit ourselves to as a way of merely easing our troubled consciences. It's not something that we can just keep to ourselves as Christians either, as if it helps us, you know, get through life personally, but there's really no other... It really affects nothing else outside of us or others around us. Rather, Jesus' resurrection says that all are accountable to him. And that means everything about our lives matters. From the way we greet our wives in the morning, to the way we treat our co-workers, to the way we eat our food and drink, to the way we paint on a canvas, to the way we write and read and speak and laugh, to the way we play music, to the way we spend our money, to the way we give our money, to others in need around us, even to the way we sleep at night. Everything matters. How are you spending your days? The resurrection says that we'll be held accountable for all of them and rewarded accordingly. That's a sobering reminder to make every day count for Christ. To make every day one that we live in light of Easter. This is why we come together every Sunday. It was the Lord's day. It is the day He rose from the dead. We don't come to celebrate Easter on this day in the calendar year. But every Sunday... Reminding us that every week and everything we do is characterized throughout those seven days by Christ's resurrection victory, by his new creation, by our new moral order that we belong to. It's also a glorious hope for those who are in Christ because none of our deeds will go overlooked. 
None of our good deeds. None of our labors will be in vain. All of them are accounted for and all of them will receive a just reward because all of them have been testimonies that Jesus Christ alone is worthy of our allegiance. Let us live for that day. Let us live for Jesus' approval. Let us look forward to the unfading crown of glory that will be set on our heads by the physical, though marked, hands of the risen Jesus. Let us live for that day. What does Jesus' resurrection mean? It means a whole lot. It means that God is faithful and Jesus is righteous. It means that Jesus' cross really provided the forgiveness of sins and that Jesus' vindication assures us of a right standing with God when we believe in Him. It means that our resurrection and God's new creation is already here and yet still coming. It means that one day everybody will bow to Jesus' righteous rule on earth. He cannot be ignored. He must be adored. Truly our Iraqi friend was right. Jesus' resurrection changes everything. History can never be the same. And now, having heard of what the resurrection means, will you be the same? Let's pray together.